Thanks, Lawrence. It is great to be here with you all and great to be starting this, uh, this series on the epistles of Peter. So I don't know if you know, but yesterday was a great event in the, in the history of the world. The uh, fifth edition of the iPhone was released. Now, I bring this up, but it, there are some really interesting facts about the iPhone. Um, almost one and a half billion people in the world use an iPhone. That's 19% of the global population of every man, woman, and child. Almost one-fifth of the world is an active user of an iPhone. In the U.S., 136 million out of 382 million, no, it was 332 million people use iPhones. That's 41% of every man, woman, and child in the United States uses an iPhone. So why do I mention this, and why is this such an important thing in the, in, in, for, for the entire planet? Well, the passage today, if you notice there in uh, verse 9, refers to the salvation of our souls. And this, this idea, this phrase, salvation of our souls, it, you know, traditionally when we see that phrase, if you've been in the church for a while, um, when people say salvation of souls, it typically, what we typically think of is, is we die and we go to heaven. We're saved from hell. And that's what it means for our souls to be saved. And that is a, an aspect of it, but it's not the entire picture. And it's not really at all what um, Peter is referring to here. Again, it's an aspect, that, but it neglects the immediate and existential realities of what it means for our soul to be saved. The, the phrase actually refers to our entire person. The word is actually, in the Greek, the word psyche. So it's our mental, our emotional, our spiritual, and our physical well-being that Peter is referring to when he says the salvation of your souls. And so Peter is referring to this, this salvation of our souls as the outcome or the goal of our faith. So our faith is what we believe in that is going to save our souls, what's going to bring our whole person into this place of health and well-being, not unlike what we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes, a happy and fulfilling and meaningful life. So I bring the iPhones up because it's, just, it's one way of looking into how we as a culture, not just the U.S. culture, but um, a massive part of the population. What, how do we turn to our phones to save our souls? Because I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we see our phones, whatever, whatever brand you use, it doesn't obviously have to be the iPhone, to bring comfort, to bring relief, to bring security, to bring peace. You know, we use our phones to entertain us. We use our phones to shop. We use our phones to chat and text and message with friends. We use our phones to, to post updates on our various social media accounts through which we want a lot of affirmation from people. So it's not really the phone itself. 
It's what the phone enables us to comfort ourselves. Some of us pursue sexual pursuits with our phones. Some of us distract ourselves with news and sports. And a lot of times, all these things are just distractions because we don't want real life all the time. Now, there is no doubt that we as a people, whether we're talking about Americans or the global population, there's no doubt that we need saving, we need the salvation of our souls. Our souls need to be saved. Our whole persons need healing and strength. Mental health needs are skyrocketing. Loneliness and isolation are pervasive. Substance abuse continues to grow and wreak havoc across all sectors of our population. We're pressed to greed and to gluttony, believing, as many cultures have throughout all of history, that the more we can accumulate and consume, the happier that we are going to be. Now, we know, we know that that's not true, but that is still what we, what we pursue. And our souls continue to deteriorate. Now, Obviously, our smartphones aren't the only things that we pursue for comfort, but it's a picture into what we are increasingly doing to ourselves in pursuing the salvation of our souls. How are we going to become happy, healthy, strong, fulfilled, and meaningful people? So the recipients of the, of the letters that Peter was writing to, they were facing challenges in their life, and they were also pursuing salvation for their souls. They were also pursuing vibrant mental, physical, social, spiritual health. So let's see what challenges these recipients were facing and see what Peter, one of Jesus's closest followers, had to say. So quick, real quick, Peter, if you're not familiar with who Peter is, so Peter was one of Jesus's closest disciples. So he was one of the 12. They were the kind of the foundations for the early church, the apostles. Peter was one of the 12. One of the more highlighted and prominent leaders uh, in the New Testament and around Jesus Christ when he was on earth. Peter was an impulsive leader, and it, that impulsiveness oftentimes got in, in trouble. I can, I can relate to that. I happen to be somewhat Im, impulsive or think that I can do anything. But anyway, and he also demonstrated some weaknesses. You know, he fought, when Jesus was put on trial, he followed Jesus to the, to the courtyard of the high priest, and, and some people were challenging him. They're saying, Weren't you, aren't you a friend of Jesus? Weren't you one of the 12? He's like, no, I don't know Jesus. What are you talking about? So he did that three times. And then later in, in the book of Galatians, we see that, that um, out of fear of man again, he sided with Jews in pursuing a more religious, legalistic approach to community life, and he separated from the Gentiles who's still holding to the Jewish law. And Paul the apostle had to kind of call him out publicly because of the division he was creating there in the church in Antioch. And so he was one of the 12. We see some weaknesses in Peter. And here he's writing because he overcame a lot of those weaknesses. And he's writing to this church, to these, actually this group of churches and Christians that are called the elect exiles of the dispersion. So these are the recipients. Literally, the phrase means foreigners and immigrants. So he's writing to foreigners and immigrants. Now he knew these people. 
So why does he call them foreigners and immigrants? Well, most likely, these people that he was writing to were people that had been expelled from Rome. And so Roman emperors were known for their mandatory expulsions. And so if the city was undergoing too much civil disorder, or if there wasn't enough food to go around, the emperors, emperors would just say, hey, certain folks need to leave. And oftentimes those certain folks were those who they considered the troublemakers, which were oftentimes those people that did not affirm the emperor cult and, other, and the other pagan religions. And so oftentimes it was the Jews and the Christians who were the ones being expelled. And so these expelled foreigners and immigrants were receiving this letter. So they were foreigners and immigrants, foreigners in their own home city of Rome, and now foreigners in their new locations as immigrants. So this has significant implications when you go to read this letter, if you kind of understand what the situation was with the people that he was writing to. And so you have city dwellers from the city of Rome to what is largely a rural area. Now, there were some towns, you know, but it's a, a rural area, much like some of the rural area in Minnesota. We have towns and cities here and there, but if you get out of the metro area and away from like maybe Duluth and Rochester, it's primarily rural in terms of its culture. So you had city dwellers moving to rural areas. They lost their lands and their homes in Rome. It's not like they had these eminent domain laws where it said, hey, if the emperor ever wants to kick you out of your house, he has to compensate you according to its current market value. No, it was, if the emperor wants you to go, you go and you lose, because most likely they weren't Roman citizens, and so they, had no, they didn't have the legal rights that Roman citizens did, the Jews and the Christians. And so they lost their lands, they lost their homes, and these new locations, they, didn't they weren't moving into places where their families had been. They don't have any lands. They don't have any homes. And you can imagine the type of hostility that they were experiencing as foreigners and immigrants into a place that was rural. You, you could expect things not unlike what we continue to see in places where immigrants are moving in, and there's hostility with the current majority population. And so uh, those are the kind of experiences, and that's the situation that these recipients were, ex were having. And so as we, as we read through this, some of the things we need to consider is, what if the government forced us to give up our homes? Again, not getting compensated for it. What if the, our governments wanted us to move somewhere else? And, and in fact, in some cases, told us where we were going to move. What would we do to save our souls? How would we respond? Where would we be mentally? Where would, we, where, would be, where would we be socially? Because these people are moving away from what they're familiar with, even though they're foreigners in Rome, to a place where they're increasingly unfamiliar. So there's those social dynamics. So these people are troubled people. Their assets have been removed. They have been moved to new locations, new homes, new jobs, new lands, new people, new environments, new cultures. And we need to ask ourselves in going into this letter, how much is the health of our psyches 
our mental and emotional and spiritual and physical health. How much is the health of these things, our whole person, dependent upon our net worths, our social status, our monthly incomes, of people liking you, of the status of your, your investments for retirement. Or if you're a young adult and you see these things as the future that's going to bring you some soul saving. And you, so you're, you, there's a lot of work and effort being put into whatever you need to do to get to that place, which is why we have a lot of anxiety and stress in our younger adults as they think about being done with high school and going on to some sort of vocational or higher education. Where would we be in these spots? Obviously, our, our smartphones would be of very limited help in these circumstances. Well, what's Peter's message to these people? Literally, he says, praise be to God. That's how, like, praise be to God. It, the whole, these whole first uh, 12 verses is a, is a doxology. It's one big long sentence praising God and directing its readers to praise God. So Peter's solution to our souls that need to be saved is worshiping and singing praises to, be God, to, to God. So here's what he says, though you have not seen him, verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying your praise and worship to God leads to the salvation of your souls. Your praise and worship to God leads to your whole person's health and well-being. Our rejoicing with beautiful and magnificent joy that is too great for words brings about the healing and the strengthening that we long for in our whole persons. So how and why are we able to rejoice in this way? Is, first of all, is this, how is, he, he explains why this is the case. And there are, there are two reasons that should propel us to worship and rejoice in God, even in circumstances as dire as the ones they were facing. First of all, the first reason, we have been chosen and set apart as holy, a special people to God. And there are four points to this. First of all, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This means that God took an intentional act to select us and bring us into his purposes. We're gonna, it's by his mercy we see later in this passage. By God's mercy and by God's love. Not an act of our own will and not an accident. God has chosen us and made us a part of his eternal purposes. And we have been chosen, second reason in the sanctification of the Spirit. So God's will drew us and put us into this position of being in his kingdom and his family. The Holy Spirit, in response to the will of the Father, sanctifies us. 
And there's two parts to this. There is the, the sanctifying work that happens when we believe in the gospel. We are made righteous. And then there is the ongoing work that the Spirit does in making us more and more like Christ, in doing the work of saving our souls as we continue to respond to God with the same faith that we responded to in the first place when we believed in the gospel for the first time. So God calls us and chooses us specifically to be a part of his kingdom and his purposes. The Holy Spirit does the work of doing that at the moment in time that we believe in the gospel and on going through life as we continue to put our faith in the gospel, for, the re for a particular purpose, obedience to Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. So we have been pulled out of a world in serving all of these other false gods, and we have been put into a world where we have been directed to the one true king, the one true Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. So we have been called into that place to obey him and to be sprinkled by his blood, which means... It, it is through Jesus Christ's shed blood that the Spirit worked according to the will of the Father. So Jesus Christ's shed blood is what cleanses us of our sins and is the means through which we are actually saved and healed and made well. That's this idea of being sanctified. We're justified, declared righteous. We are made righteous, sanctified by this ongoing work all of which comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So it's a very special and unique place that God has called us into, which is why late in the last part of the passage it says that the Old Testament prophets for thousands of years searched and searched to understand who and what time is God through the Holy Spirit talking about? And that's really the, the purpose of the message of the Bible course that Lawrence is starting to lead tonight. There is a prophetic message throughout all of the prophets in the Old Testament about the Messiah, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't revealed who is this going to be, what time is it going to come. So the Old Testament prophets, all those writings, all those generations of God followers for thousands of years, we're looking towards this moment, this moment that has been revealed to you, especially. And the angels long to look. Why do the angels long to look? The angels long to look because they don't personally experience this grace. You know, as we, as we learned when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes, um, if we don't have the bad seasons... The beauty and the goodness of the good seasons is not as enjoyable or glorious. The angels do not experience this, but we do. Those who have believed in the gospel do. They, they experience a redemption. They experience a power. They experience a beauty that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about, that the angels would long to look in, but you now experience because you have been specially called by God for this place at this time. That's the first reason, chosen and set apart. The second reason is that we have a living hope. We have a living hope through the resurrection. So what does he mean by this? So we were sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, which brought us into his death. We were Jesus' blood cleansed us. We were baptized into his death. His death, his death was our death. 
We're baptized into his resurrection. His life is our life. He rose from the dead, and all things lead to death. We're born into Jesus' overcoming of death. And he says that this, this living hope that we have in Christ provides an inheritance. It provides an inheritance, and he describes this inheritance. And I want us to think, think about getting a piece of land with a house and some money. All right. This inheritance is a portion of the kingdom of God, is what he's talking about. But to put it into some material terms that I think we can grab a hold of, think of a piece of land with a house and some money. So the first thing he says about this inheritance is that it's unperishable. Your house is not going to decay. We just had a hailstorm come through. It's getting replaced. Thank God for insurance. But there, you know, our house is going to decay. Your house is going to decay. It's going to need paint, repairs, etc. It's going to burn down. The inheritance, the house, you get from God is never going to decay. The market value of your assets is never going to decrease. You don't need to worry about it. It's just going to continue to grow positively. It's undefiled. You know, maybe you, you, maybe you get this piece of land from a family member or some, somehow, you know, and there was a gas station on it. Or maybe it's marshlands, so it's wetlands, and the government won't let you do anything. So here you have this piece of land, this inheritance, but you can't do anything on it because of its environmental condition. It's defiled. Peter says, you are getting inheritance that is undefiled. It's never going to go away, it's never going to decay, and it's not spoiled. The government can't take it away from you. It's unfading. You know, when we, when we move into a new house, or we get something new, and you see this with kids all the time when you give them gifts, it's new and it's exciting, but the newness quickly runs, fades away. What he's saying is, listen, you're going to get an inheritance. It's never going to go away. It's only going to grow. It's never going to be spoiled or stolen. And it's always going to feel brand new. Always. Always. And God is keeping this inheritance for us in heaven in heaven now again we don't die and then go to spend eternity as a spirit in heaven heaven is coming down we will have physical bodies on a physical earth sharing a physical inheritance so we don't it's not a land with a house and some money it's going to feel like those kinds of things but it's going to be much more glorious so this is a, it's a new identity. We have a, a new family. We have a new citizenship. We have a guaranteed inheritance. And these things, Peter argues, should change our perspective. Should change our perspective. He actually says that, you know, the trials, and the word is, can also mean temptations. These trials and temptations that you're going through, yeah, it's grieving you, but let's, let me tell you something. They are necessary. They are necessary. Our faith necessitates the trials and temptations. If we wouldn't feel tested, if we wouldn't feel tempted, we wouldn't have a faith. We wouldn't have a faith. There would be no tension. There would be no struggle. What the world wants us to do, we would do. What our flesh and desires want to do, we would do. 
No testing. We just do them. He says, but because you are a Christian, you are experiencing these trials. Because you are a Christian, you were kicked out of Rome. Because you are a Christian, you are experiencing discrimination and hatred and racism in where you live now. Because you are a Christian. For that reason, you should rejoice. God is, is holding for us a treasure. God is holding for us a treasure. He's guarding it. And he's guarding us that we may enjoy that treasure through our faith. He's guarding the treasure. He's guarding us to enjoy the treasure. These realities should then change the perspective of our suffering. We should act, what he's saying is that in the experience of these trials, you should be rejoicing because they are an affirmation of your place in the kingdom of God and of your eternal unfading, unperishable, undefiled inheritance. And he concludes the passage. I, there's an ambiguity to verses, to verses 8, to verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. You know, the first time I read that, I'll be honest with you, I'm like going, hmm. Do I? You're saying I do, Peter, but do I? What, he, what he's trying to do is positively orient the readers at the beginning of this letter, because he's going to get into the letter and say, hey, here's where you need to rejoice more. <laughs> here's where you need to put aside the temptations more. But he's starting them out with saying, listen, I, kn I know this is where you're at, and I know you're, you're doing well, but there's some improvements to make. And so when we, we read this and and you know, how are we going to receive it? What if we read this and we say, you know what? When he says, you rejoice, you love, and you rejoice, and you stop and you say, you know what? I think it'd be more accurate, Peter, if you said, you don't rejoice, you don't love, you don't rejoice. That would actually more describe what I do. Because Peter... When I'm encountering trials and suffering, I, my first response is not to rejoice with an inexpressible joy. So there are two elements that go into this that are the resources for us to have these kinds of responses. The first one is our faith. Our faith is what we believe in. The second thing is our hope. Our hope is a certainty around what we believe in and its ability to do good for us. So we all have a faith and we all have hopes. When we cannot rejoice in our suffering, it's because of misplaced faith which means that the hopes that we have are not the living hope of the gospel, but dead hopes. We, we don't think they're dead when we believe in them. We believe in these things, whether they're material possessions, whether it's our social status, whether it's our friend's affirmation, whether it's our great education, whether it's all the entertainment, what, whatever it might be that we look to save our souls. At some point, we're believing that they will, and we are hoping, believing that they're going to lead to good. 
When they don't, it proves that they're dead hopes. Again, researchers say we inherently know that the things that we pursue to bring happiness will not bring us happiness, but we continue to pursue them anyway. It's because our faith is not in the gospel that God called us, the Holy Spirit sanctify us, and Jesus forgave us and drenched us with his blood, baptizing us into his death and into his life. It's, we, we are believing in different things. Peter says we have a living hope. That living hope is never going to go away, and it's never going to disappoint because Jesus Christ, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ rose from the dead never to die again. And that secures for us an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, imperishable. You know, the dead hopes are not altogether wrong because look at the things that we typically try to find hope in. Family strength and a sense of belonging. Well, we find in the kingdom of God that it's once again family. We find, you know, material possessions. You know, in the kingdom of God, there are material possessions. The things that we long for are not altogether evil. It's just that they're disordered because they're not the ultimate things. They're not the ultimate things. Many of us would say, yes, I affirm the gospel. I believe the gospel. I do rejoice. I do love when I'm faced with trials. But I think in, the, in a lot of times, it's a facade. We're putting on a, a show. And, and if a lot of times we are in, in, in these places, we're living an unexposed life where we're quick to affirm the religious things and to have some sort of a, a, a mock worship of God. People did this all throughout the Old Testament. God says, listen, I'm not interested in you worshiping me. I'm more interested in you obeying me. And that obedience then springs forth with a joyous worship. But if we put worship as, as the front, hiding our true trials, hiding our temptations, hiding our sins, hiding our fears, then what we're doing is, is minimizing what Christ has redeemed. And we can live this kind of religious, unexposed life, minimizing the work of the Father, the Spirit, the Son, minimizing the, the pain that we are enduring, the suffering, the pride that we experience. And again, it minimizes the work that Jesus can do. Our, we long to just be right. And that self-righteousness, again, is a dead hope. It's eating us alive from the inside in our desire to not expose where we are struggling. These people weren't hiding the fact that they were experiencing trials and temptations. It was out, and it was hard. These were hard, hard circumstances. And we have to be willing as a community of God's people, which is the subject of a couple of sermons in the, down the road, to bond together in love and be real about the pain and the suffering that we're experiencing because it's the only way we're going to be able to experience fully this, this work that the Spirit is doing in us and making us a temple, a holy nation. He's going to have all these ideas and words for us as a people that, that we need each other. 
So there's only one way to experience the salvation of our whole persons. It is to rejoice and worship God in the midst of our trials and our temptations. The harder things get, the more we have to orient our mind to worship God, to acknowledge the pain, to recognize Christ's blood has taken care of it, to recognize that the Spirit is the one doing a work in me. And let that spirit work. You know, over the last couple of weeks as I've prepared for this sermon, really been meditating on this passage, a lot of trials. And I just remember, Lord God, thank you that you have saved me. <laughs> thank you that you have saved me and that I'm, that I'm in your kingdom. And it, it has brought strengthening to my soul. It has lifted me up from the trials and the struggles. Because it acknowledges that, hey, God, through the Father and the Spirit and the Son, are really the only source of life. Let's pray.